Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Wittick, and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. Welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, Tony and I are joined by Dr. Douglas Borham. He is currently a professor and the division head of medical sciences at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine. We kind of break down all of the radiation-related things. Not even all of them. There's too many to break down in this short amount of time, but we've got a good start. Um, And since this episode got a little bit on the long side, I decided to cut it in half. So this will be episode five, part one. Thanks for joining us today, Doug. If you uh, wouldn't mind, just take a minute and introduce yourself for our listeners. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, my name is Doug Borham. I'm the division head of the medical sciences division at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine. My my expertise in radiation spans over decades. I started, uh, actually I started with radiation while I grew up in a town called Dolly Lake, which my dad was a uranium miner and we had lots of issues with, with tailings and things like that. I went, I actually started my career interested in radiation because of that experience growing up in Elliott Lake. And uh, for the past 35 years, I've been doing research on uh, ionizing radiation, the biological effects on humans and the environment. Uh, yeah, this, uh, I, I sort of started my career at the University of Ottawa doing my PhD while working, uh, doing my research at the Chalk River Nuclear Laboratories at the time for AECL. Got my PhD there and then they hired me afterwards. I worked there for 10 years doing radiobiology, studying all sorts of effects and genetic from environmental to genetic effects. And then uh, I went to McMaster University in 2000 and was a research professor there for 12 years. Uh, in 2012, I went to Northern Ontario School of Medicine because I'm from the North and I want to get back to the North. And so there I set up a, a radiobiology program that now is located at two campuses, one in Thunder Bay and one in Laurentian. And we have a, a number of researchers at the school doing low-dose radiobiology. Uh, 20 or 30 grad students and postdocs working on. So we've, we've established a very world-class recognized program in low-dose radiobiology. Awesome. That all sounds like you're a busy guy. I seem to interview a lot of really busy people. <laughs> it seems to be the way. <laughs> so I'm just wondering if just to start out, so we're obviously here today to kind of talk about radiation and specifically how it is relevant for a deep geological repository. And I'm just kind of wondering if you could start us out with just a, I know there's no really quick overview of radiation, um, but just a little bit about radiation versus radioactivity and maybe the different forms of radiation that we should maybe be not so much concerned with, but cognizant of in regards to a DGR. Well, you're you're quite right when you say that there's, uh, it's it's quite a broad topic. I would say that of all the uh, uh, things that we study in the environment that, that impact health, I think radiation has been studied the most of anything. We've been studying it for for decades and decades and decades, and we know a whole lot about how radiation interacts with humans and the environment. Uh, it's we know how to measure it very precisely and very accurately. So yeah, so radiation, ionizing radiation, has been studied and is still being studied intensely today. So the different types of radiation that are out there, um, basically, we can say it's electromagnetic radiation spectrum. And what that means is we have a whole bunch of, of wavelengths of energy flying around us all day long. We have radio waves. We have microwaves in our microwave that we use. Um, we have all sorts of other light, different types of light. And then as the wavelength of, of this electromagnetic energy gets shorter and shorter, it means it has more and more energy. 
And that more that as the energy increases with the shorter wavelength, we get into the area where now the, the, the wavelengths can interact with, with matter. And of course, we're made of matter, so it can start interacting with us. And that generally starts around the, the area of, say, ultraviolet light. So for example, you go out in the sun too much, the, this is a non-ionizing radiation, but what it does is it excites some of the molecules in your body, especially in your skin, and that causes some damage to what we call your DNA, and then that eventually can kill your skin cells, hence the sunburn. So that's, that's the sort of the, the point of where the electromagnetic spectrum starts interacting with biological living material and causes this kind of DNA damage that can affect the cells. The wavelength then gets shorter than that, and we now have ionizing radiation. And what ionizing radiation is, is, the wavelength is such that it can knock electrons out of orbitals of atoms that make us up. So we're made up of all sorts of atoms, and the ionizing radiation can knock electrons out of the atoms, and these atoms, of course, make up molecules and proteins and, and other things in our body. And when you knock electrons out of these, these atoms, they start changing their molecular form. The most important one, of course, is our DNA. It is the longest sort of molecule that we know of. Uh, roughly one meter of DNA is in our cell, every cell of our body. So we have a lot of DNA in our body, a lot. In fact, if I, when I'm teaching this, I'll tell my students that if you take the DNA in your body and stretch it from every cell in your body and stretch it out, it could go from the earth to the sun and back 365 times. That's how much DNA is packed what? in your body. So yeah, so a little bit, a little, so when we get ionizations happening, these, these molecules get damaged and the damage has to be repaired, right? So that's when we start seeing situations where ionizing radiation can cause changes to biological molecules. And like I said, DNA is the critical target for, for what we're talking about when it comes to ionizing radiation. Now, the thing yeah, I love about this discussion, Doug, is that the science is a little bit beyond what our senses can immediately kind of tell us. When you start talking about, you know, the length of the DNA in our body and so forth, you know, we don't have common experience of that. And it's a little bit like the DGR where, you know, none of us have seen a hole in the ground that goes down 800 meters. We can't visualize that. We can't visualize how far down 800 meters is. We, we can't visualize what 200,000 years is like, right? Because we we've only right, lived, right. you know, 30 or 40 years, right? So, so we have to fall back on science, right? And, right. and scientific analysis, to help us understand these things and help us, you know, predict the way systems are going to interact and, and the way things are going to happen. So I think it's very, very helpful to have the level of expertise that uh, you bring to the conversation here. Well, it's, uh, if you talk about the DGR in, in 800 meters, uh, it's uh, interesting that we have a, a life sciences research lab that we built 2000 meters underground. And that's, uh, that's in the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. We built the first life sciences lab down there for a specific reason. And the reason is we want to shield living things from natural background radiation, mostly from cosmic rays, because a lot of radiation comes from outer space and interacts with us, ionizing radiation, that is. So yeah, so I know how it is to go down 800 meters. And worse than that, I know how, we, how it is to go down 200 or 2,000 meters. So it's, it's quite a ride down, let me tell you. And our students uh, sometimes... Uh, it, it, sometimes we, we call it what we call it snowfall. And that is when you're going down in the, uh, the cage, some people tend to sort of not handle it so well. And uh, therefore we, they fall down and that's what we call snowfall. In the <laughs> <laughs> and they, that uh, being that's, said, we, that's part we of the old ankle very, mine then. This, yeah, this it's, it's the old mine, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, val it's valley now and it's a great mine. But the, the snow lab, as you know, 
is, is a world-class astrophysics lab and won the Nobel Prize in physics back in uh, a few years back. Art McDonald and others uh, won the Nobel Prize figuring out what neutrinos were. So when we went down, uh, we, we looked at that place and said, this is an ideal place to study what really low doses of radiation will do. In fact, our hypothesis is that by removing natural background radiation, because we've evolved in it, it's going to have a detrimental effect on life. So this is uh, something we're going to be testing. And uh, we're actually working on it now. We have call colleagues and collaborators from around the world that are interested to see what's going to happen with this. But yeah, so trying to keep the science simple in this is, uh, is always a challenge because, you know, I've been doing this, like I said, for 35 years. And one of the issues we have is helping people understand what dose is, right? So what is a dose of radiation? Well, you start talking to people and all of a sudden you've got, you used to have RADs and REMs, and some people still use that. And we have sieverts and we have uh, gray and we have becquerels and we have curries and I can go on and on and on with all these different things, right? So how do we actually put it in perspective so people can understand what it really means? And that's always one of the challenges because when you ask me what uh, type of radiation might come off of a fuel bundle uh, hundred years from now, I have to give you a number. And a lot of times that number is meaningless. I can make it a really big number. Or I can make it a tiny number based on the units I use. So it's important to understand that we have to relate this to what would be the biological effect on uh, the, one of the most sensitive things uh, that we have. And, and that would be sort of mammals or humans on this planet that are very sensitive to this compared to other things, which are very resistant to radiation. When you're talking about doses specifically, how, how are safe levels determined? Like how, how are those determined? What is considered a safe dose? So yeah, when it comes to looking at the radiobiology of things, we don't have a lot of experiments for radiating humans with whole body doses of, of large doses of ionizing radiation. So we have to look at uh, we have to look at sort of events that have happened, like for example, the, the, the catastrophe when we had the atomic bombs go off and, and look at people and, and where they were when it went off and how far away they were, because one of the things about doses is that the further away you are from the source of radiation, the less effect it will have. And that's one of the things we do is we, we get further away. So distance is one way to protect yourself from radiation. The other is shielding, of course. But when the bomb went off, a lot of people didn't have shielding. So we would look at uh, the effects of these lifetime survivors. Um, so it's called the lifetime survivor study. And so we go back in time and we're looking at uh, what happened to the people that survived. Because obviously some people didn't survive. The dose was too high or they were immediately vaporized or the thermal flash kill. There's a lot of things that damage people. Um, the people that survived did, some of them did get exposed to radiation. And the further away, the way they were from the source, the, the, the hypocenter of the bomb, the lower the radiation dose they got. And so we could study them. And almost immediately after that happened, we were studying the biological effects of this type of radiation on humans and human health. So with that, you can sort of look at, well, what actually happened when someone got exposed instantly to a high dose of radiation or a little less dose, a little less dose. And at some point you start seeing no effects, right? From, from, a, from a point of view of, well, did people actually um, survive it? And do we see any effects? And, and generally the consensus in, in, in the radiobiology world is that something below 100 millisieverts, uh, we don't see any effects anymore. And that's where we kind of say it's a low dose. A lot of people won't say it's a safe dose, but uh, I would say it's a low dose and I would say it's a safe dose, but there's always caveats to these things. If you get a hundred millisieverts all at once or you spread it out over a year, clearly there's gonna be a different effect. So that's how we, we look at safe doses 
And, and again, it's extrapolated from, um, from most of the atomic bomb survivors. This, uh, there, there is sort of a, a way that people have extrapolated from it. And, and there's a number of models that are based on the biological data above 100 millisieverts. So like I said, what is 100 millisieverts? Well, it's hard to put that in perspective, but uh, if I was to put that in perspective for you in terms of cells, roughly every cell in your body at 100 millisieverts would get about 100 tracks or photons through it, every cell. That sounds like a lot, but when you get a CT scan, you get 10 millisieverts. So every cell gets about 10. Sometimes you can get uh, x-ray procedures that go up to 100 milligray or millisieverts. And you see, I'm using the term gray and, and, and sieverts interchangeably here when I say milligray or millisieverts. And that's because when I talk about a quality of radiation that basically is the same, I can use the term gray or sievert. For example, x-rays and gamma rays basically are the same. So, and, and we always reference x-rays and gamma rays as a millisievert. If you were to have, say, something like an alpha particle, which is a different type of radiation, and you could technically say that the same dose, so the same gray of, of alpha particles, could have 20 times the effect. So instead of saying you'd have one gray or one sievert of gamma rays, you would say, I now have 20 millisieverts worth of dose from an alpha particle that's 20 times stronger, even though the dose is still one gray. It's 20 millisieverts worth of effect. Another confusing factor, but that's what we have to live with. Yeah, so, Ra yeah so, radiation so is definitely uh, it's definitely not a cut and dry, straightforward. Learn it through a couple of YouTube videos. Topic. It is. It's definitely you know something people go to school oh, for. I think this is the problem we have when we run into trying to help people understand it, like the public understand it, because we've made it such a complicated thing. Like if I if I was to say you know a, a banana is radioactive, right, because of natural potassium in it, and a lot of times I'll use bananas as the equivalent dose. So if I say to you, if you eat a banana and you get like 0 0.0001 millisieverts from a banana because the potassium 40 in the banana is radioactive, you can understand, well, that must be a tiny dose because we know bananas are good for us and we eat lots of bananas and no one's dying from eating bananas. So it's a tiny dose of radiation. But if I was to say to you, okay, if you're going to get a, a, an x-ray scan for say a DEXA scan, which is what you use to look at bone density, that scan would give you 0 0.0004 millisieverts worth of radiation. So if I told you that, you'd say, well, I don't understand what, what is 0 0.0004 millisieverts of radiation. But if I said to you, well, that's four bananas worth of radiation, you say, oh, well, four bananas worth of radiation isn't very much, right? Yeah. I'm okay who cares about that. four bananas? <laughs> yeah, who cares about four bananas worth of radiation? Yeah. I had two today already. So, <laughs> so my so, question so with the safe levels, a lot of people in town here, when we're talking about the DGR, that there's this, you know, during transportation, you won't be exposed to anything above a safe level or at the repackaging plant, there won't be anything above a safe level. And there's this information circulating that you can only be exposed to so many safe levels before they're not safe anymore. So how many mm -hmm. safe levels can you be exposed to before it's not safe? This is, this is kind of a, a question or, or an analogy that people use. If you believe in sort of, I have talked about the LNT, the linear non-threshold I like to call it hypothesis, the linear non-threshold hypothesis, because it's not a model and it's not a theory, it's hypothesis. And, and what that is, is that um, that hypothesis says that no matter what type of radiation you get, it adds up and there's no safe level of it and it goes down to zero. But this is, a, this is a, an extrapolation from high doses and it's, it's a model, it's a hypothesis that really is not supported by scientific data. 
A lot of epidemiological data tries to support it, but it fails at the low dose range. There are other models that look at radiation at low levels, and uh, we can see that there are thresholds for things. That means at a certain dose, it has no effect. There's no, no effect after that dose. And there's other models that say at doses that are at, from a certain point to where we're down to background again, we can actually stimulate biological processes within our body and within our cells that can stimulate immunity, that can stimulate anti-tumor effects, that can stimulate all sorts of repair mechanisms. And that model would then suggest that at certain low doses, you have a negative risk or, for example, a, a positive effect in your body. So, so wait a second, Doug. So, so we, <clears throat> there's two things there that are very different that you're saying, right? One, one is that at a certain level, at a certain low level of radiation, there's probably no negative effect. And, and the, way, the way I express this to people is, it, you know, if I take a, a 40 ounce of whiskey and I drink it right now, Mm-hmm. that's going to be very dangerous to my health. But if I drink an ounce of it a day over 40 days, there's probably no impact to my health, right? So, yeah. and I, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but... Yeah, well, I always use the analogy of wine because I, I I used to have a winery and I drink a lot of wine. So it's the same yeah. idea, right? In yeah, case same of idea. day versus a case of month is a different biological it's a, effect. It's a different thing, right? So, because your body is made to withstand certain things, right? But you said something very different there. You said that, at low levels, there may actually be beneficial effects. There, you're finding that there, and and I think you've got <clears throat> some research ongoing to this effect that certain levels of radiation actually are likely beneficial and maybe even necessary for the yeah. health of of mammals and uh, humans and other mammals. Yeah. Well, so you use you use the word may or maybe, and I'll use the word they are beneficial. There's no doubt about it from a scientific perspective. We have rigorous scientific data that can show for certain endpoints, there's net positive effects. We've published literally hundreds of papers on low dose effects of radiation. And, and this is the reality of it is. But the, the issue I think we get into with, uh, with the linear non-threshold hypothesis is that it's a simple thing to understand. It's a simple thing to use for radiation protection. In other words, if it's straight and it all adds up down to zero, just keep adding it up and keep people safe by just saying, we're gonna do the best we can to keep the dose as low as reasonable possible. And we're going to assume it's all bad. And we're going to assume that it's all additive. And that's the that's where the hypothesis fails. A hypothesis should be supported by scientific data. You can never prove or disprove anything. You can only get data that supports a hypothesis. And, and what we're talking about here is if you say that it's all additive and it should add up, and if you give lots of little doses, you should start seeing an additive effect, but we don't. We have to see an effect that's not additive and it's not additive at all. In fact, I can take, and I've, I've got many experiments I've done where I've actually taken two doses of radiation, which are more than one alone, and the two doses have less of an effect than the one alone, because one of the doses is stimulating a process, and the other dose then, the, the negative effect from the higher dose is being sort of modulated a little bit by the little dose. So, so when it comes down to this, this is a big debate, right, in the scientific world, and, and I think there's a difference between radiation protection and understanding low-dose radiobiology. So you're asking me about these, these safe doses. If you're using the, 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 the linear non-threshold hypothesis, then you could say it all adds up. But your analogy of drinking is very good. You can, I've always used the ones with aspirins, right? So let's put it this way. If you, ate, if you consumed an entire bottle or two of aspirins all at once, it's gonna have a negative effect on you. In fact, it could kill you. Why do we prescribe one aspirin a day then for people for years and years and years? because it has a beneficial effect. 
It's exactly the same analogy. One aspirin a day, good for you. I'll make the argument that one glass of wine a day, maybe two, it's good for you too. So same analogy. And I, I, you know, I don't like to, to make it sound like it's, uh, it's kind of, you know, I, I brush it off because I do get criticized a lot for, 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 from people that say, you know, you should be more uh, sympathetic to people that are really concerned and worried about radiation. Because I do get lots of emails and, and, and people inquiring about, you know, have I really given my child cancer because I had to give them a CT scan because they fell off their bike and banged their head. People get really upset about that when they go on the internet, which, you know, has all this information out there that that's, uh, I call uh, fear information and fear is the acronym for false evidence appearing real. And there's a lot of that on the internet. So if you get this fear information and start looking at it, you can actually convince yourself that you actually have increased your child's risk of getting cancer from a CT scan. And I've had people sort of correspond with me saying, you know, ever since I did this, I can't sleep anymore. Um, I'm upset all the time. My husband's sleeping in another room now. I get headaches. And they say, you know, is, there, is my son, has my son been affected by the radiation? I say, absolutely. Your behavior and the way your stress you're putting on yourself and your family is going to have a negative effect, but it's not from the radiation. And, and that strength that stems out from everything from Chernobyl, Fukushima, all this stuff. If you go back and look at the real data, the effects from these incidents when it comes to radiation are mostly psychological. And there's a lot of problems with that. Our ability to handle things, you know, with Fukushima, no one is going to die from the radiation exposures from that incident, from that event, because the doses were just too low. But how many people have died? Not counting the 20,000 from the tsunami and the other events that happened. We've had people die because of the Fukushima reactors. And that's because we did things that stressed people out and caused them to do things like, well, there are some suicides that happened, right? Because people were automatically thinking, I'm going to die anyways. We had people in a hospital that the hospital was apparently too close to the radiation doses they might get from Fukushima. So we evacuated the hospital. Well, first of all, um, we evacuated the hospital, but the only ones that could leave were the people that could leave, like the, the staff, the doctors, the nurse, but the people that were in ICU and other beds that couldn't leave, were, they stayed there because they couldn't, they couldn't evacuate. It was an emergency response. It was a, a knee-jerk response. But what happened was the next day, there had to be a rescue to get those people out of the hospital. So we took these people that were critically ill from a hospital and put them in a gym in a school some you know 10 kilometers away. And more of them died. So and they weren't in people, any real danger in the hospital. No. In fact, this is the thing that I always try and remind people is that we set up an exclusion zone because we think that this is a safe level. Below this level, it's going to be safe. And it happens to be 20 millisieverts a year of exposure to radiation. If it's higher than that, then we have to exclude people. And if you look at the natural background levels of various countries and places on the planet, many places have levels that are 10 times higher than that, naturally. So some people would argue when we're evacuating people in exclusion zones at such a low level of radiation, maybe you should think about evacuating southern France, which has like 70 millisieverts a year worth of radiation or places in Iran that have hundreds of millisieverts a year with the radiation. And when we look at those people, you're getting, you know, 100 millisieverts with a dose a year. Is there, you know, is, are we seeing any effects? Are we seeing malformations in your children? Are we seeing increased cancer rates? Are we seeing cardiovascular disease? Are we seeing certain lifespan? The answer is no to all that. So when, when, when I see an exclusion zone going up and people dying because we're moving them to be safe, when for a year they could have stayed in that hospital and that dose they would have got would have had no detrimental effect on them at all. That's where the, the psychology comes into it. Yeah, I talked so, about that yeah. um, last week with Dr. James Conka. We talked about the fear of radiation being more dangerous than the radiation itself. 
people's fear of it causes yeah, so well, many sure. more issues than the actual radiation, which is There's sad. No really. Well, it, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of times when I do uh, presentations to, to various audiences and things like that, they'll, um, you know, I'll say a lot of times I spent 35 years doing radiobiology research and I probably should spend 35 years doing psychology research. I may have a better impact uh, doing that. And, you know, it's been 10 years since Fukushima, right? It's been 10 years. And, and if you look back at the way people responded to Fukushima and the fear of radiation that, that people still have today near and around Fukushima, and you compare that to sort of other fears where you would think that, you know, maybe we should be well, let's, let's, for example, with the MAX 737, right? Two of those crashed, killed some three or 400 people. And there was no one out there trying to put the fear of flying into people. There was a, it was a catastrophe. So, I mean, you had two major accidents in the aircraft industry, but yet the fear of flying never really became an issue. People didn't, they either got on a different plane <laughs> and didn't even fizz about flying, or they waited until the MAX 737s. The problem was resolved and now people get on a 737 don't even think twice about it because there was no sort of psychological impact or a fear factor being put into people it's like when that uh, ammonium nitrate thing blew up in beirut like it killed a lot of people it damaged like it was a, it was as bad as a freaking nuclear explosion in some sense like of a, of a smaller one but yet no one was really worried about where you make this stuff and and the people that made it didn't even comment on it it was just all oh, that was and and, and we still so it's, it's just sort of the, the radiation psychological factor is one that uh, we spend a lot of time trying to help people understand. And it is a very difficult challenge because the, the, the bottom line is that people are entitled to their own opinion about things. You know, I don't like uh, certain types of scotch. No matter how much research you tell me that it's good for me, I still don't like So opinions are, you have, to, you have to understand people are entitled to their opinions. I guess uh, what we run into a, a bit of a challenge is when Opinions are not based on facts and they're based on other things. And then we, uh, it, it's sort of, uh, it, it inter interferes with sort of process like you're talking about with your DGR, right? I mean, this is going to be a highly advanced uh, program that's going to go on for decades. I mean, I'm not going to be around when it ever happens. It's going to be such a long time. And, and, and the, the beauty of it is it's adaptive. So as our technology is advanced, you know, we are advancing technology pretty quick these days. Something's going to come up. And uh, it's going to be, oh, well, there we go. So much for, for that plan. we got another plan now. So I think it's a really good approach. I think that the fact that we can measure radiation in minute quantities almost instantly anywhere in the world allows us to monitor things like these, these depositories. They're not going to leak because they're designed not to leak. And if they do leak, we're going to immediately detect it. And they're not going to contaminate water because we have the technology to prevent that from happening. And so what we're going to do is we're, we're just going to sort of, if this ever does happen, we're going to be in a good situation where the science will be keeping up with it. And I, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, I have my own opinion on whether we should stick it in the ground or not, but I know it's going to be safe no matter what we do. Uh, I know that uh, I, I look at our spent fuel as a resource because there's lots of resources in those spent fuel bundles that, uh, we know what we can use today. For example, some of the things that are used for nuclear medicine. We some of our, our our rare isotopes we have to get from spent fuel to actually treat certain types of cancer. So, and we don't even have a clue of what to do with all the other, you know, hundreds of different types of elements we have in those fuel bones. Right now, it's just sort of a let's just it's a resource and let's just sit on it for a while. 
I, I heard a talk somewhere that I think a guy from U of T did a calculation that there's something like a trillion dollars worth of rare precious metals and, and, and other things in those fuel bundles if we were to get them out. So, you know, there's always different ways of looking at things. And that's it for this episode of Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud. I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you. Thanks so much for joining me. And remember, we don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another. Mm-hmm.